This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, everyone. This is Susan Thompson of Colgate University, a host on New Books Network and African Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for tuning in. Today, my guest is S. Garnett Russell. She's an assistant professor of international and comparative education and the director of the George Clement Bond Center for African Education at Teachers College, Columbia University in New York City. Her book is titled Becoming Rwandan, Education, Reconciliation, and the Making of a Post-Genocide Citizen, published by Rutgers University Press in 2020. Uh, In it, uh, Garnett argues that although the Rwandan government makes use of global discourses in its national policy documents, the way in which school teachers and students they teach engage with these global discourses, these global models actually distorts the curricular intention of the government, resulting in a series of unintended consequences and of course, an undermining of sustainable peace. Um, Garnet, thanks for being here. I'm uh, looking forward to speaking to you today. Thanks Susan for the introduction and for having me on the show today. Perfect. Um, I wanted to start with a question, not a question, a comment. Could you summarize your book for those who, you know, don't know much about Rwanda and who might be keen to pick up your book? How would you summarize your... My book? Yeah, sure. So my book addresses the broader question of um, how countries that have undergone violent intergroup conflict use the education system to promote uh, reconciliation and peace building and also um, address the violent past. So in the case of Rwanda, I was interested in how the government is drawing on these global models, um, specifically in national education policy documents, um, curricula and textbooks, and then how teachers and students engage with these models um, in the school level. So I think you did a great job of, of summarizing, summarizing it previously. Oh, good. Um, yeah, so the book is definitely about um, education. And that's, I think, my first question for you. How many Rwandans actually have access to education? And what sort of sample are we talking about in your study? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think, um, so I one thing I, I wanted to focus on in the book is just how in post-genocide Rwanda, the government is really using education um, as part of their unity and reconciliation project and to promote this new Rwandan identity. Um, And it's also really seen as a sort of a solution to the past conflicts and genocide. Um, So so one thing that that was done under um, the the RPF 
um, after the genocide, they expanded basic education um, to nine years in 2009 and then to 12 years in 2011. So this was just around the time that I was doing my, my field work. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that's something that's remarkable is that there's just been an, a, an expansion in access to basic education. Um, so I have some figures, for instance, like um, in 1999, the net enrollment in primary was 79%, and then it was up to 95% in 2015. Um, so there has also been increase in access to secondary education, but not as much. And of course, tertiary is lower. Um, but I think the issues remain in terms of quality not being as high across all the different schools. There's still high dropout rates, um, low transition you know, to the upper levels. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's, and compared to, you know, before the genocide, there's been a huge expansion and that's seen as a success story in terms of um, the work of, of the government. You know, you raise a really interesting set of questions there. Um, how many, like, can the average Rwandan access quote unquote free education? One thing that the research shows is that it may be free, but there are lots of barriers to access for the average person, average student. Um, they need a uniform. Um, they need books, like they have to sort of self-fund. Is there, is that a true in your research? Did you find that in your re research? And secondly, is there must be a big distinction between urban learners and rural learners. Rwanda has such a, a sizable divide in terms of rural and urban. What did your research find? Yeah, so um, in terms of access to education, I would say that Access is pretty universal at this point to mm -hmm. at least to primary education. Um, so, you know, they've done a lot to to get rid of the school fees and requirements such as uniform and uniforms and textbooks. I think there are sort of informal barriers that might arise. I mean, my research didn't focus specifically on that, um, right. but um, from what I could see, you know, and I did work both in urban and rural areas, and I think that's that's really important to point out because there is a huge disparity in terms of the quality of education. So the schools in the capital Kigali um, are much higher quality, you know, they yeah. have access to better resources, better teachers. A lot of the students there uh, were fluent in English, whereas in the rural areas, I had to rely on my research assistants to um, interpret and, you know, can Rwanda or in some cases in French, um, so I think that's where you see the variation, the urban rural, um, and also the types of schools. So I lo also looked at different types of schools. Right. Um, so some schools are just, the boarding schools are seen as higher quality and they have better funding and they're harder to access. Whereas like the basic education schools, which the government um, built very quickly when I was there, they were just adding on, you know, schools to the primary schools so they could, the students can continue to study, but the quality tends to be lower in, in those those types of schools, basic education schools. Yeah, that's a great segue to my next question. Um, you did your doctoral research in Rwanda. What brought you to the study of, you know, education and peace building in Rwanda? Is there a backstory there? Yeah, so um, I guess it. I've always been interested in these issues around um, peace building and human rights. And I think the focus on education was was very much shaped by my time working for, for UNESCO. And I worked in the sure. Asia Pacific region for several years on the Education for All initiative. And I spent some time working in Nepal during the civil war um, right. and also in the refugee camps in Thailand along the border of Myanmar. 
So that's really when I became interested in the issues of um, the role of the education system and, and conflict affected and, and post-conflict context. Um, and, and that led me, um, when I went to do my, my PhD in comparative international and comparative education, um, I was very much interested in looking at uh, a conflict setting, a post-conflict setting. So I, I ended up looking at Rwanda just because Rwanda, for anyone who studies these issues, it's such an emblematic case. Um, and also I was interested in Rwanda because they've actually been doing a lot in terms of the reforms in the curriculum. So I also was thinking about Burundi at one point doing a comparison, but not much had been done there. So I think right. Rwanda, because of all of these reforms, and if you look at their textbooks and curricula, you know they do talk about peace building and human rights and these global ideas that you know you might expect to find. So I think that's what really attracted me to the case of Rwanda is that they were engaging with these global discussions. So I wanted to see how they actually. Um, implemented them in the classroom and, and also the, the reaction of local actors to these ideas. I mean, you do do that in the book. You speak of this norms cascade, um, as we know, is um, part of the political science literature. But before we get to that, what would you say in your estimation makes Rwanda an emblematic case of how global norms of education for peace building are made real in people's lives? Um, I think, I guess, it's emblematic because um, they obviously, you know, the 1994 genocide um, and then sort of the way they've responded to the aftermath of the genocide. And, you know, now it's 27 years after the genocide. And I know um, there's a lot of critique as well for other things, but at least in terms of these global ideas around, um, you know, the Millennium Development Goals or the sustainable development goals, particularly in health or gender equality or education. Rwanda is often held up as, as an example of a model. Um, and I think particularly in education, they've just done a lot to um, expand access. And then of course, around gender equality, you know, having the highest proportion of women in parliament in the world and um, access to healthcare. So I think that's something that um, intrigued me, right. As a scholar, um, you know, they're doing really well in these particular areas. And I was curious about um, how they were using the education system, um, you know, to as part of the broader peace building process. It's so interesting because of course, um, the current Rwandan leadership, the RPF, the Rwandan Patriotic Front frames itself um, as an exception to most of these global discourses. But one thing your book does, and I think it's really interesting is show us how they actually cascade into the lives of the ordinary student, the ordinary um, teacher. And that's my um, next question for you. Can you talk about like the education system in Rwanda? What are we looking at in terms of this norms cascade? The government has produced a particular curriculum. Are teachers involved in that curriculum? And then could you secondly talk us through like, what is a day in the life in a private school and a day in the life of a public school student? Mm -hmm. Uh, Sure. Yeah. So I think in terms of the curricular reforms, um, the old curricula after the genocide was completely destroyed. (laughs) So one of my, one of the teachers I worked with had kept one of the old history books um, that, that I think they were burned or something. Um, they were seen as biased so 
when they created the new curricula, and I was looking specifically at civics education and history, um, Mm -hmm. I think they were really trying to align it with more um, sort of global ideas about these topics. So for instance, the the new civics education curriculum, they created a new curricula in um, 1999 and then 2008. They had funding from UNICEF um, and the ICRC. So I think they, they were very much in line with sort of global ideas about what civics education should look like. So talking about, you know, human rights and peace building and these types of things. Um, And then in terms of the history curriculum, um, they actually, there was a moratorium on the teaching of history after the genocide until 1999. So there weren't, there was no curricula or textbooks. And then they actually solicited the involvement of UC Berkeley and Facing History and ourselves to produce a new um, history curriculum. But then that that was that process. I talk about that in the book. It was um, yep. a bit uh, fraught, I would say. Um, so they ended, <laughs> they ended up um, producing their own textbook that was sort of based on that project, but then it wasn't really in line with what you know hist- history as you know they had envisioned it as having you know different narratives, different versions, sort of open discussion about you know, sources, primary sources, it was more the official version of history that they wanted to teach. Um, right. So that's what happened. They came out with the new curriculum. It was much later though, like 2008 and then 2010. And then the textbooks didn't come out until around when I was there, 2010, 2011. So, um, and then they recently, um, we did the curriculum in 2015 and now they're very much focused on this idea of core competencies. So I think, I think they are very much trying to align themselves what, you know, with what they see globally and sort of, you know, what UN organizations or NGOs might encourage them to focus on. Um, so I think um, in terms of your second question um, about the, the daily life of students in a, a private versus a public school. So mm-hmm. I think that interesting about Rwanda um, as compared to other countries, I mean, Rwanda, it's a very, um, the education system is very centralized, right? So you, sure. all of the schools have to follow the same curriculum and use the same textbook. So regardless of whether, whether they're public or private, I also had um, the schools that were religious. Um, so they, they receive money from the government as well. So you don't actually find that much difference in terms of those three different types of schools that I included in my study because they all have to follow the government curricula and they... I'll use the same textbook. So I think the differences are more in terms of the quality of the schools and the more elite schools, for instance, in the capital, they just have better resources and better funding. But in terms of what they're learning, I mean, it's quite similar. I mean, I observed classes um, across the three types of schools and across three different parts of the country, um, you know, in the Eastern province, the Western province and in Kigali and I think the main difference was the teachers, you know, just hire um, better trained teachers, of course, in the better schools, um, better resources. So more textbooks, some schools didn't even have textbooks. Um, So I think this, so the schools say in a rural area um, outside of the capital, the students might, you know, they might not even understand they didn't speak English at the time. So maybe the teacher would be translating into Kenya Rwanda. um, So, or the resource, the resources in the school weren't as nice. So they, they, ha- they all had desks and tables, but maybe they didn't have many learning materials or they didn't have 
textbooks. Um, yeah. So that those are the, the types of differences that I saw. But in terms of what they're actually learning, it, it, it's quite centralized. Um, so you don't you don't see as much variation um, from that, the policy perspective. And I think where you do see variation is what the teachers themselves decide they want to teach about. So right. I did find differences. Um, some teachers just didn't want to teach about these topics, you know, about the genocide or sure. because they're contentious and it's hard for them to um, talk about these topics, right? Because they don't know how the students will react. They don't know what questions will be asked. They might be accused of genocide ideology. So I think that that was more what I saw as um, an avoidance of certain topics in some schools, whereas other teachers felt much more comfortable, um, particularly teachers who themselves were um, survivors, Tutsi survivors or returnees. They, um, they felt very comfortable talking about the genocide. Um, so I think, I think that, that was an interesting finding as well. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, that is interesting. Thank you for sharing that. It um, reminds me of something I learned in my own research. I met um, an American re- a teacher. She was a teacher at one of the private schools in Kigali. And she was like, yeah, we're teaching the children of some of the RPF, but not that many, like they're elite kids. Um, and we really stay away from teaching the genocide because we don't want to offend them. We don't know what they learn at home. And that conversation was very vivid in my mind when I was reading your book. And this is my next question. Um, In terms of civics education, um, what is the barrier to full teaching? You mentioned genocide ideology. What is that and why does it affect um, the classroom? Yeah, so the genocide ideology law um, from 2008, it's a law that was, it's, I mean, it's seen as kind of any thoughts or acts or speech that um, incites people based on their ethnic group or origin. So it's, it's a very sort of generally phrased law. And I, it was revised in 2013, but it's very vague. And I think that's part of the issue is there's a lot of fear. So amongst the teachers, because they don't know they could be accused of genocide ideology. I heard um, stories of students accusing their parents of ideology. So it's just, it came up in my research as just this sort of thing, this thing to avoid, right? Being accused of ideology, right? Inciting violence between ethnic groups. And I think that's sort of tied to the um, restriction against talking about ethnicity. And I think those two things made it difficult for teachers to talk about um, the genocide, to teach about the genocide and really to talk about reconciliation in an open and genuine way. So um, it constrained open discussion in the classroom because um, teachers, depending on their own identity and background and level of comfort, talking about these topics might, you know, might want to avoid discussing these things because in their classroom at the time, I think one thing that's really interesting about when I was doing my work is that um, the classrooms were quite mixed. So there were um, in the classroom, there were survivors of the genocide. There were um, returnees from, you know, who'd come back from 
Uganda or the DRC or uh, Burundi and children of perpetrators. So all in the classroom, right? Um, so the teacher had to be very careful to navigate these topics, not only because they might be accused of inciting violence, but um, as you mentioned, you know, they might go and tell their parents, oh, you know, they talked about um, the double genocide or there were certain taboo topics that were very taboo and teachers yeah. didn't want to mention because they were worried about the repercussions. So I think it just, it points to um, the difficult role of the teacher in sort of mediating these different competing narratives that, that are outside of what the official curriculum um, talks about. And I, I think that that was one thing that came out of my work. Yeah, thanks for that answer. It sort of leads us to the meat of your findings, the core of your findings. Um, and you mentioned it in your earlier response, like this official version of who did what to whom during the genocide and the savior role of the RPF. How much does this official narrative match what um, teachers believe to be accurate? Like, do, does history need to be accurate to be part of um, sustainable peace, as you say? Or, and this is really my question, is there a certain wisdom in what the RPF is doing and sort of crafting this common official history that this generation can eventually um, hold up as their own in, in pursuit of a future piece? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I, I'm not sure if, if I know the answer. I mean, I think on one hand, can history ever be accurate? Um, I think it, yeah, it's very much depending on your perspective and I think what historians try to do is provide different perspectives and provide the primary sources and allow for discussion about, you know, what is accurate. So mm -hmm. I think that's something that um, is missing now from the current presentation of the historical narrative is it's very much um, one-sided, you know, it, it doesn't allow for other narratives or other perspectives. And those come out a bit, you know, some of the teachers told me their experience or, you know, one teacher, and the Western province told me that um, he used other materials he'd found like from Human Rights Watch or, you know, that he himself knew about other versions of this, this history um, or from you know, his own experience. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's something that the teachers were aware of and they questioned and some of them said, you know, how can I, how am I supposed to teach about the genocide against the Tutsi when at the same time we don't have ethnicity anymore? So I think they struggled with the, um, sort of the contradictions as well. Um, so I think, you know, the common narrative on one hand, perhaps it, it keeps things from, you know, it avoids conflict or contentious discussions in the classroom. But I think students and teachers question this narrative privately. So they might not talk about it in the classroom, but definitely in the interviews, they would, you know, they would talk about it. And, they had their own narratives that came from their, their own lived experiences or their family experiences. So while the students probably were too young to remember their families were affected. So one student told me that, you know, he lost his father um, after the genocide, you know, his father was killed by the RPF. So I think, I think that's the issue is that when you have the lived narratives that come from the community or the family, and that goes in contrast to what's coming from the government or the official narrative, that's where you have this sort of tension. Um, right. and I think it'd be interesting now because it's it's been so long and the students don't have any kind of, you know, memory maybe from their family, but it would be interesting to see how it is now. It's, it might be different now. You know, when I was there, it was 
sure um, closer to when it had happened. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting um, response, and it sort of speaks to the title of your book, "Becoming Rwandan." What is the role of a you know a, a partial history? Um, I think to state it generously, what is the role of the, um, this official history in the government's vision for crafting, for lack of a better word, um, a particular kind of Rwandan citizen? Obviously, education is part of that socialization. So did, did that come up in your research at all? Yeah, so I, I really felt like they, they saw the school as this site to build this new Rwandan identity. So very much de-emphasizing ethnicity. So this idea that, you know, these are children, right? So you can sort of erase this idea of ethnic identity um, and create this new um, Rwandanness, you know, Abanya Rwanda. And mm-hmm. um, so I, yeah, I definitely saw that in the school. And I think that comes out, you know, with this idea of um, the new, everything is new, you know, the new curriculum, the new language of instruction, English, um, the new citizen, they, they have a very much of a global orientation talking about these um, global ideas. And I think, um, on one hand, they they tried to do that, and the students never themselves mentioned ethnicity. They didn't self-identify in ethnic terms yet. It's still very much there, um, sort of indirectly. So I think they would talk about other groups like, oh, those survivors, oh, or those people who came from such and such a country. So it was more what I found that it was more about um, where you were during the genocide. Um, so if you were a survivor or a returnee. And the language he spoke. So there was very much like an Anglophone versus Francophone divide. Um, but I think there were sort of like proxies for indicating if they were Tutsi or not. Um, whereas with the teacher, the older generation, you know, they they were open about their ethnic identity. Um, right. They, they didn't feel that they had to hide it. But I, so I think that that to me is very interesting um, how they are creating this new narrative. And I think the students know that they know not to talk about it, but yet if their parents or family members are talking about it, it's it's not like you can completely, you know, get rid of ethnicity, even if it is socially constructed, right? So I think that's that's what's quite interesting about the what they're trying to do with the schools. Yeah, and that's my next question. I appreciate that answer because it leads us to like this global model. Um, why would the RPF embrace a global model if it has very particular outcomes in mind? You know, the erasure of ethnicity or the suppression of ethnicity, this intention to become, quote unquote, Rwandan. Of course, there's still your title is great because they're still in a process of um, becoming. So what what is the value of the global model and what is its content for um, the Rwandan education system? Yeah, so, um, so I mean, I'm trained as a sociologist and I think the work I draw on, I mean, it, it really just talks about why, you know, why countries are drawn these goal models and it's really about ideas about legitimacy, right? So to be sure. seen as legitimate um, and also for donors, you know, I think I argue that they really, they privilege certain certain topics. So they talk about human rights, but they talk more about social and economic rights more than say contested political and civil rights. And then women's rights and gender equality is a very much um, a focus. And you see that also in the education materials and the policy documents. And I think that's something that it sort of provides them um, something that the international community recognizes and okay, they're doing really well in this area. So 
it's a way for them to gain legitimacy. So that's kind of how I see it. I mean, sure. they do they really need to refer to all these global models? No, but by doing so, it sort of um, highlights what they're doing and you know gets the attention of the international community, I would say. Thanks for that. Do you have any um, insights? Like, did your research come to find that the government is actually on the right track? Is there a wisdom to this policy um, in terms of like creating a model Rwandan citizen or is this reproducing, you know, the exponential categories of um, in and out groups, just not using ethnicity as the um, construct as you noted? Yeah, I mean, I think so what I found was that there are still differences. There are still groups, I, you know, I call them boundaries. Boundaries are still emerging across these different groups. Right. And it's because at the time um, when I was there, they still they still had scholarships, the Farge, um, the Genocide Survivors Assistance Fund, and the the ARG, which was the association for these survivors. They had clubs and scholarships specifically for genocide survivors, so they were still singling them out as being different. Um, and then, of course, when they talk about the genocide, it's always the genocide against the Tutsi, which you know the the name also changed right over the years. Yeah. Um, so I think I think on one hand they are promoting this Rwandanness, but then on the other hand, in certain contexts they continue to promote um, ethnic terms or ethnic identity. So I don't know. I mean, it, it's hard to say. I think on one hand the students tended to be optimistic. I think they they were happy that there was stability and and peace, sure. and that you know if there's economic growth and stability, I think generally people are content. But if things go, you know, go wrong in that, that front, then underneath, you know, I think there, there is, yeah, there's a lot that hasn't been talked about openly and there's resentment and tensions that aren't discussed. And yeah, I mean, it's hard to say how successful this project is. Let me um, ask you a specific con, um, question in my own discipline, peace and conflict studies. Mm-hmm. Is is the piece that the um, RPF has, you know, promoted, produced even, I think you could argue, sustainable in the way you describe in your text? So, yeah, two questions. What is sustainable peace and has mm-hmm. the RPF actually made strides towards, like, enacting that goal? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, it's hard to say. I mean, I think, I think um, on the surface, it looks, yeah, it looks successful on the surface because, you know, they've, had these different initiatives, um, you know, Gachacha and the different um, programs to, to foster reconciliation and unity. And But I think it's hard to say whether this is sustainable. I mean, I would argue that what's happening in the classroom or what's happening in the schools is, is not genuinely promoting peace building. I think it's more glossing over the past and sort of skirting around the real issues. I mean, I think it's, I think they've also turned their focus really to um, math and science and technology and, and right. sort of avoided the more contentious issues. Yeah, I mean, that's something that you see as well in the schools, like very, very little time is actually devoted to talking about these topics to begin with. I mean, it's there, which is good, but it's, it's sort of, it's not you know, it's not the main focus. So I think, I think the government is saying, well, we can just focus on developing and um, development and that'll sort of, that'll lead to peace peace building. But I think, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's hard to say whether that's 
actually the case because so much has not really been addressed and there's a lot under the surface that, that I think is still needing to be discussed. It's really interesting your, your um, answer because of course you could probably make the same argument about American schools so that we yeah. on STEM and less on civics. Yeah. You know, depending on the state, obviously there's a different structure in the US, but um, it's, I think that's what's so emblematic of a case study. It can be applied to other settings and your work in Rwanda could certainly be applied to school curricula here in the US for sure. Because um, Keith is one of these amorphous things. And when I was reading your book, I was thinking about a concept that Roger McGinty introduced to the literature called Everyday Peace. Mm-hmm. He yeah. writes about sort of the social practices, the conviviality, the sociality of what makes a, a society peaceful. And he ultimately concluded using Northern Ireland as his primary case study that social practices give the appearance of peace. And it can be difficult for analysts like, you know, scholars like us to actually know what people are thinking. And that's where I think your book is interesting. You begin to reveal, you know, a snapshot in time that teachers are thinking this way, students are feeling that way. And there's a range of um, opinion. And I think it's uh, an important contribution in that regard. And this is, you know, one of my last questions. I've taken up a lot of your time Is the work that you design, the research you design, the research you implemented possible in um, present day Rwanda? You know, COVID notwithstanding, let's assume that COVID is not shaping how we access um, the field and so on. But is is your study possible um, today, 10 years later? Yeah, Yeah. so I I don't know. I think think it's grown increasingly difficult to to do research in Rwanda. So um, when I was there, I, I... got permission from the Ministry of Education and from the schools and of course, um, you know, consent from the participants. Um, But I think, I think over the years it's gotten increasingly difficult and the, the research coming out on education is, is not necessarily on these sort of contentious topics. I think it's more, it's more on sort of, yeah, quality of education and that kind of thing, language policy. Student outcome. So, yeah, student outcome. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I think it would be difficult to conduct this research now. I, I think at the time when I did this, it, um, I, yeah, I was fortunate. I think I was able to gain the trust of, of teachers and students and, you know, by spending time in the classroom. And um, I also did some of the interviews in French, and I think that helped with some of the teachers who were francophone or some of the students who had been educated um, mostly in French. Um, and I think, you know, my status as an outsider helped because I don't think they would have necessarily shared this with a Rwandan. Um, but yeah, I'm, I think it would be difficult. I think things have, I think it's over the years, it's gotten more difficult to conduct this type of work. Yeah, I, I agree with you on um, many levels. And of course, trust is hard to build. But I, I take your point. There are some topics in authoritarian settings, just not the Rwandan setting, but any authoritarian setting in which it's easier to speak to an outsider. Yeah. And being a white American, like you're very clearly an outsider. Um, so with that sort of in mind, um, I'll ask you a final question and then you can ask me anything maybe I forgot to, sh- to ask or something you wanted to say. Are there books or podcasts or any, you know, documentaries that you would recommend for listeners who want to learn more about, you know, education for peace building or um, the process of becoming Rwandan in the Rwandan studies literature? 
Um, yeah, so I mean, I think Elizabeth King's work um, from classroom to conflict in Rwanda is, is a, a great book um, that sort of outlines the history of the education system and the role it played in, in fueling the conflict. Um, I see my work as sort of looking more in the, at the post-genocide context. Um, and then also um, Tim Williams does a lot of really interesting work also looking more sort of at what's happened since they've expanded access to education. So I think for, for scholars interested in Rwanda and specifically education, those are, those are two, two people that I would, I would recommend. Sure. Anything on um, education for peace building? Is there what like what literature really stood out for you for education and yeah, like on the global model? Um, I mean, I think it's sort of a so. I guess one thing I wanted to do with my work is is highlight the role of education because I think it's sort of it's not it's usually not part of the discussion education. Right. Right? So I think that's true. That's kind of part of my work is this, it's a gap and. In the literature, I mean, a lot of the peace building literature, political science, um, you know, like it, it's it's more looking at political structures and economic developments. But education is seen as being sort of apolitical or neutral, and it's really not. And I think what my work shows is that something as seemingly simple as the curriculum or the language policy is, in fact, very political. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's an area that there's stuff coming out, but I, I'd say an area that is um, in need of future research. Um, one, one person, Julia Paulson, does work on this um, in different contexts. Um, she's done work in Peru, and I think, um, I think that's, yeah, there are a few people working on this topic, but it's, it's, it's not given as much attention as, as one would expect. Yeah, and no, I appreciate that. I think you're right. Um, and it, it is taken for granted in ways that um, political scientists, you know, my own discipline don't often fully recognize. So thank you for that answer. Is there anything that I um, didn't ask that you wanted to share with listeners? Um, yeah, so I just wanted to pick up on a few things that you had said earlier that I thought were important to emphasize. Um, so one is just that um, what I really wanted to do with my work is, is highlight the perspective of the students and the teachers. And I think that's important. Um, that's what comes out of this is, you know, it's not, it's not so much what I think, but it's really, you know, coming from them and what they think. Um, so that's important. And then I think what you mentioned about the relevance of this work to other cases is also really important. Um, and, you know, I've done work in other contexts as well and divided societies, South Africa, and I've done work in the United States with, um, refugee students and newcomer students. And also I'm doing some work in Colombia. And I think, it, you know, what I found in Rwanda is, is also true in other contexts. Um, so I, I think that's important to highlight. It's, you know, it's hard to talk about these topics in divided societies. It's even harder if it's a more authoritarian, non-democratic context, obviously. Um, right. But I think a lot of what I found in Rwanda could also be applied to you know, the U.S. In the current day, our, our own society, you know, we're having a lot of difficult discussions and there's a lot that hasn't been talked about a lot about, you know, our past and the violence that's happening now, the police brutality and you know, Black Lives Matter movement that that stems from, I would say, that the fact that we haven't really reckoned with our own history and our own past. So it's just been really interesting for me as, um, you know, someone who studies these topics to, to see this happening, this reflection kind of going on right now here in the U.S., 
Um, thank you, Garnet. That's a great way to end our conversation. You've been listening to Garnet Russell talk about her book, Becoming Rwandan Education, Reconciliation, and the Making of a Post-Genocide Citizen. Thank you.